In the passage we're about to read, James gives us some, some very important characteristics of true religion. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God who gives abundantly uh, and bountifully to those who don't deserve it. Um, This morning we bring our gifts, our tithes, and offerings to you um, because we have something to give because it has come to us through your gracious hand. Um, And Father, we pray that you would use these gifts and tithes for your glory in this world in order that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And even as we, procl- we pray this morning that the gospel would indeed be proclaimed to all the nations, we pray that it would be proclaimed to us here today. Because no matter how we come through the doors this morning, uh, tired or anxious or angry and bitter, uh, confused or perhaps skeptical or, or even rejoicing to be with your people and to learn from you, um, at, at the end of it all, we're really all the same because none of us deserves your grace. We are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so we pray that you would lift our eyes this morning and that you would reveal Jesus to us so that we could be reminded this morning that even though we're far more broken than we could ever imagine, because of His person and His work, we are also, and at the same time, far more loved, far more accepted, far more approved of, far more secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. So, Father, bring us to this good news and change us by it, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And the children, ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church. Make your way to the back of the sanctuary. Someone will take you to your class. <clears throat> well, this morning, uh, we're, we're looking together at James 1, 26 uh, through chapter 2, verse 7, which was read for us earlier in the service, and we're continuing a series this fall through the book of James, James' letter that he wrote to the church. Um, 
And rather than ease into things today, I want us to jump right in, and I need you to jump right in with me um, and to really start uh, thinking and reflecting with me um, at the very beginning. Ernest Becker was a cultural anthropologist in the mid-1900s who wrote a book that won the Pulitzer Prize called The Denial of Death. Um, Now, Becker wasn't a Christian. Uh, I think I've I've referred to him before, but as a cultural anthropologist, he studied uh, human societies and cultures and their development, and through his observation, he came to realize that all of humanity is trying to cope with the terror of death with the terror and the fear of our own mortality and the very temporariness of life. Uh, We desperately want to last. Uh, We want to matter. We want our lives to matter, right? We want there to be some lasting significance about our lives and about who we are. And so Becker was saying that every person and every culture and every society constructs what he called and what he termed immortality projects. Uh, And he said, we use these immortality projects to cope with our fear and our anxiety that we don't matter. Uh, And and so from this, you can probably guess that Becker saw all religious claims as immortality projects designed to cope with this fear. But if all humanity is really engaged in this, then you would expect to see it in every sphere of life. Um, and, that's, and that's really Becker's genius in this work because he saw that lying behind our desperate need and want for things like romantic love is really a deep desire to prove to ourselves that we matter, that we are in fact lovable, that someone could love us as we are and know us as we are, right? He saw that lying behind our artistic endeavors is, is really a deep desire to prove that we matter by creating something of lasting importance and value. Uh, it's what… Li- he goes into all kinds of things, but it, it's what lies behind our deep desire to succeed in business, to succeed in parenting, to accumulate wealth and power and influence, to passionately get behind some cause. Um, I, I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but I really do think he had his finger on the pulse of humanity. Because what he's really saying is he's saying, everywhere you look, we are all desperate to prove that we have value. We're trying to justify our lives. We're trying to prove that we're worthy and that we're lovable, that we can last and be significant, and that we that we can know we matter. So the question this, this morning for us is, is that possible? Is it possible for us to know we matter? And if it is, how do we get and how do we live a life that really matters and echoes into eternity? And if we, and listen, if we can really be assured that we matter and we can believe it, and know it's real, 
then how does that change our lives? In what ways does it set us free to become something different? Uh, You know, if we look closely at this passage, I think we're going to see that James is really answering all of those questions. Uh, And in more profound ways than Ernest Becker, James had his finger. He had his finger on the pulse of humanity. He had his finger on the deepest desire of humanity and its satisfaction to know that we matter and to live out of the freedom of knowing we matter. So um, this morning, to prove that I can, I'm a preacher and I can count beyond the number three, we have four points. Um, so here they are. First, the lifestyle that matters, and then second, the people who matter, and then third, how Jesus matters. And then last, how we can matter and become like our Father. So the lifestyle that matters, I'm going to give these to you again if you're a note taker. The people who matter, how Jesus matters, and how we can matter and become like our Father. So first, the lifestyle that matters. In chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, James wrote that pure and undefiled religion consists of three things, a controlled tongue, keeping oneself unstained from the world, he wrote, and caring for widows and orphans. Now, what what we're going to do is we're going to look at the big picture of this and not get lost in the details of those three things, because what James is actually doing in those verses is he's outlining the rest of his book for you, which he is going to cover these topics in detail, because in chapter 3, James will address the tongue, and in chapter 4, he'll address keeping oneself unstained from the world, and in chapter 5, he'll discuss caring for one another and how we can use our wealth to care for one another. So, big picture, James is saying, The lifestyle that matters is a lifestyle of compassion, of justice, and integrity. Using your words to bring healing to those around you instead of abuse, instead of taking life. Right? Protecting and caring for the most helpless people in society. Living whole, consistent, and uncompromised, morally pure lives. That's what James is talking about. And these three things, he says, are pure and undefiled religion. And before we get cocky and we say, oh, that's it? Just three? You know, I got this. I can figure this out. James is willing to offend everybody, uh, everyone, right? We're hearing plenty in the news today about Democrats and Republicans and liberals and conservatives and so forth, naturally because it's an election year. But if we, if we had to simplify and summarize the difference between political liberals and conservatives, I, I think we could do it like this. We might say liberals believe that the most important thing is social justice in the world. But how you personally live your life shouldn't be anyone's business but your own. And conservatives believe that the most important thing is how you personally and morally choose to live your life. But how you choose to spend your money shouldn't be anybody's business but your own. And I know there's stereotypes, and there's many of you that are going to approach me afterwards and tell me that your views are much more nuanced than this. Okay, I get it. But... Those stereotypes are there for a reason, right? They're based in reality. And and my point is here that we can't even theoretically agree on these three things that James mentions, much less live them out as ideals. But my next question is, why are these three things? Why are these three things for James the essence 
of a lifestyle that matters. And I think you're going to see this as we go through James' letter. Is he, what he's really going to say is, these are the three things that matter because these are the three things that matter to the heart of God. Right? Isaiah wrote that the angelic choir is in God's presence and all the time throughout eternity, they are singing about Him, holy, holy, holy. The only time anything is ever tripled for emphasis in the Bible, and it's about God's holiness, that He is absolutely pure and consistent and morally uncompromising. Right? Proverbs chapter 6 lists six things that the Lord hates and a seventh thing that He detests. And I'll let you read up on the other six. But the seventh thing that the Lord detests above everything else, that passage says, is a false witness who pours out lies and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. He is a God of truth and reality, not lies and deception. The psalmist wrote that God goes by this title in Psalm chapter 68, that He is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. He is forever on the side of the helpless and the poor and the disadvantaged and the oppressed. This is the lifestyle that matters because it's a reflection of God's own heart. This is what matters to Him. I read this book a few years ago called The Heart and the Fist by Eric Greitens, uh, who was a Rhodes Scholar turned Navy SEAL. So it's a very well-written account of his uh, Navy SEAL training. And the final test in Navy SEAL training, you might know, is what they call Hell Week. And having read about it, I I think it's a pretty apt name uh, for what they put them through because it's this incredibly intense physical, psychological, intellectual, emotional experience that they put these men through. And Greitens wrote down what his training officer told his Navy SEAL class about impending Hell Week. And here's what he wrote. This officer said, each one of you is like an earthen vessel, a beautiful piece of pottery, prettied up by your fathers and mothers and teachers with tender, loving care. In a few days, Hell Week is going to begin, and we're going to take every one of you out onto the grinder, and we're going to smash you on the ground, break you up, and we're going to see what's inside of each of you. With many of you, we'll find nothing. There's just air. You are empty men without substance. For others, when you break, we're going to have to turn away from the smell because you live in a weak culture that has allowed you to get by on charm and pretty talk and backslapping, and you have practiced dishing manure for so long that it almost seeps out of your every pore, and now that is what you are. Very encouraging words. Uh, For others, he said, when we smash you, we'll find inside a sword made of pure Damascus steel, and you are going to become Navy SEALs. And like, whoo That's the army, but you know, it just it gets you fired up, right? Um, when everything is stripped away and you're laid bare, what's going to be there? Because James was saying, if you don't care for the helpless, and if you don't control your tongue, And if you don't keep yourself unstained from the world, then all your Bible knowledge matters nothing. 
All those eloquent prayers you have prayed throughout your life, your perfect tithing and church attendance, they mean nothing. You are empty and without substance if you do not have these three things. And if you're not empty, right, and to be empty, he's saying, you're insignificant, you don't matter. And if you're not empty, the smell is putrid. Because if you aren't in some way living out a life of compassion and justice and integrity, then you are actually contributing and participating in all the brokenness and the evil of this world. See, James lifts up this, life, this lifestyle that matters before us, and the question for each of us is to ask, is that my life? Is that reflected in my life? If you were broken and opened up, what would be there? What would we find? Are you at least moving in this direction that James is talking about? And if you're not, why not? Okay, second, the people who matter. Verses 1 through 7, they're pretty plain. James described a scene where a rich man walked into a church service uh, and also a poor man. And the rich man was shown favoritism while the poor man was cast aside. And James was writing about how contrary this was to the character of God Himself, who He says in verse 5, chose the poor to inherit his kingdom. In fact, you can almost hear Jesus' words ringing through James, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, listen, here's what's going on. God's kingdom flips completely upside down the world's values when it comes to the people who matter. And here's what I mean by that. Ever since elementary school, we've been walking into rooms and sizing people up. You know, who are the cool and uncool people in the cafeteria? The popular, the unpopular people, the haves and the have-nots, the athletic and the not-athletic, right? It's what we did in the cafeteria in elementary school, in junior high, and high school. And the rooms and the sophistication with which we size people up, they've changed some, but it's still the same. I mean, of course James is right here. We look at the outward appearances And we want to be aligned with the wealthy, not the poor. And so we give them preferential treatment. And socioeconomic status, that's just one outward appearance that we look at in order to size people up in the rooms we walk into. Yeah, the wealthy get priority over the poor. The cool get priority over the uncool, the successful over the unsuccessful, the attractive over the unattractive, right? The homeschooling parents over the non-homeschooling parents or vice versa, Right? The educated over the uneducated. I mean, we're doing this all the time. You were, you were probably doing it when you walked in this morning. Right? Elitism, classism, racism, where does all that stuff come from? We group with people who look like, talk like, think like, and act like us. And James was writing that there is something terrible and there is something horrific about our favoritism. Because when you play favorites, you ignore the very people who matter most to God. His kingdom flips upside down the world's values when it comes to the people who matter. In His kingdom, the way up is down, and the way down is up. Philip Yancey was once speaking to a group of women who were trapped in the sex slave industry who were prostitutes. And at the end of this conference that he was speaking at, 
he was speaking one-on-one with one of these women. And he told her what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, which is this, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And so he told her that Jesus was there speaking to the religious authorities of his day. And he was saying that prostitutes and tax collectors were getting in the kingdom of God ahead of these religious authorities. And so he asked this prostitute, what do you think Jesus meant? Why did he single out prostitutes? And this is what she said. Everyone has someone to look down on, but not us. We are at the bottom. Our families feel shame for us. Right? No mother looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. In most places, we're breaking the law. Believe me, we know how people feel about us. People call us names. And she listed a variety of those names that I won't repeat here. We feel it too, she said. We are the bottom. And sometimes when you're at the bottom, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe Jesus meant that. Yes, maybe Jesus did mean that. Maybe that's exactly what he meant. That when Jesus comes and you're at the bottom with nothing to offer him, when you're crying out for mercy and Jesus shows up, you respond. And you come to him. See, the point of verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2 is that the moment you show partiality, verse 1, the moment you favor the wealthy over the poor, the cool over the uncool, the educated over the uneducated, verses 2 and 3, the moment you make distinctions among yourselves and become judges, verse 4, you have completely departed from the very essence of God's nature, and you have entirely abandoned the gospel of grace for some kind of meritocracy. He is the defender of widows, the father of the fatherless. He moves towards the bottom of society, towards the helpless and the poor. You know, one author wrote that kindness to the poor is really pure kindness. You think about that, how kindness to the poor is actually the purest kindness you can ever find. Because listen, when we size up the rooms that we walk into, no matter the room, the boardroom, this room, uh, the parent-teacher association or whatever it is, and we start playing favorites, we're looking for some kind of a return on our investment. Sometimes that's financial, but a lot of the times it's at least an emotional, psychological, or social return on our investment. Because now if we get aligned with the right people, now we feel like we matter. Because you belong, and you fit in, and you're connected to the powerful and the influential. But when you show kindness to the poor, it's pure kindness. Because you cannot expect anything in return. Now let me give you a very practical way that you can practice pure kindness. This past year, Grace Community Church partnered with Cordova Elementary School as a ministry, and it's a school about a mile away from our church, and it draws heavily from government-subsidized housing. 
And over, over two-thirds of the students that attend that school come from families that f- fall below the poverty line. And we help, the, we help provide school supplies, and uh, later this semester we'll be doing a coat drive for those who don't have any coats to que- keep warm. Uh, we've adopted all the kindergarten classes so that we can teach those kids to read. Because a lot of times kids coming from this kind of disadvantage, they don't get to learn how to read, and that affects the rest of their academic career. And so we've, we have a way for you to sign up and volunteer to do that. And, and listen, if you do, those kindergarten students are probably not going to say thank you. And I've sat down with some of them, and some of them are really difficult. Um, I'm trying to help you. You don't seem to appreciate that. Um, it's going to be very inconvenient for you to give up a lunch hour to drive over to Cordova Elementary School and serve. It, it, it's going to be a hassle. We know that it's a hassle. And there's no payoff that I can see as of yet. There's nobody from Cordova Elementary School here this morning, is there? Right? We are serving them to serve, not serving them hoping for some kind of return on our investment. And and now listen, that's pure grace and pure kindness when you can do that. Have you begun to see people through the upside-down vision of God's kingdom? And if you haven't, why not? And are you playing favorites? And have you allowed yourself to be disadvantaged to help those who really are disadvantaged in life? And if you're not doing that, why not? What's keeping you from pure kindness? Okay, let's move on. Third, James tells us in this passage how Jesus matters, which is probably not the best way to phrase my point. But in verse 1 of chapter 2, James called Jesus the Lord of glory. And every scholar that writes on this passage realizes that that is a very unique title for James to give to Jesus in this context, that he is the Lord of glory. Because you see, the word glory, it has this rich history throughout Old Testament and New Testament. Um, and it's, it's this, it comes from this word that conveys this idea of heaviness or weight or solid mass. And listen… That's what matter is, right? (laughs) Scientifically speaking, matter is an object's volume and its mass, its weight, its heaviness. Figuratively, glory is weight of importance. And James was saying Jesus matters. He is the Lord of glory. But how did Jesus reveal His glory to us? His weightiness, His matter… Kent Hughes wrote this, the glory of Christ sprang from His downward mobility. That's a phrase worth writing down. The glory of Christ sprang from His downward mobility. In Isaiah 52, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, the suffering servant. And it's a bit of a puzzling passage because in verse 13, Isaiah wrote, Jesus shall be lifted, lift, high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And he was writing about Jesus unmatched, right? Exalted importance and glory. But in the very next verse, in verse 14, Isaiah wrote, his appearance will be so marred that he will be beyond human semblance. He is going to be full of glory and he is going to be so abused and bloodied 
and disfigured that people are going to look at him and they are going to ask, is that even human? That's what it means to be beaten beyond human semblance. How does this puzzling picture of exalted glory and disfigured brutality fit together? That tension can only be resolved in the gospel. The gospel writer John wrote that Jesus, the Son of Man, would be lifted up, that is, exalted and glorified and shown to matter. But how would Jesus be lifted up? John says, on a wooden Roman cross, fastened to it with nails through his hands and feet, bloodied and disfigured. And the whole Bible testifies along with John that the cross was the ultimate and chief display of Jesus' glory. His glory sprang from His downward mobility. And here's the simple reason why. Because I think everyone understands this, that ultimate glory, ultimate glory is when the one who possesses true glory gives it up freely for someone else. This morning I was playing around on the internet and um, I ran across this video. It's pretty old. I remember seeing it about 10 years ago, um, but it was about these, these two men, father and son, Dick and Rick Hoyt, Team Hoyt. Um, and Rick Hoyt was, if, if you've forgotten or you haven't seen this, um, Rick Hoyt was born with cerebral palsy, and the doctors, upon his birth, told his parents to put him in an institution because he would never be able to walk, never be able to talk. He would basically be a vegetable for his whole life. Um, and Rick's p- parents refused to do that. Now, now listen, Rick's father, had, Dick, had never run in a race before. But his son, Rick, wanted to run in this little five-mile charity race. And so he figured out a way to push his son in his wheelchair in this race. And they have now run something like 240-plus triathlons and 70-plus marathons together. And all of this, while Rick's father is like pushing him or pulling him um, or pedaling him on a bike, right? And it's not just that, it's not just that they race together, although that's amazing in and of itself, right? But they're really, really good, <laughs> Like, they're not far off the pace of the winners in most of these races that they run. And everyone says that Rick's father, Dick Hoyt, he could have been this world-class triathlete and marathon runner if he wasn't pushing his son. They've been doing this for like 30 years, and Rick's father will not run without his son. I mean, and everyone recognizes something truly heroic about that, right? And what is it? What, what is it that's heroic? They are seeing the ultimate glory of someone who would give up their glory for someone else. James wrote in chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is the Lord of glory. He shows you how He matters. He reveals His glory in the cross in that He gave up His glory for you. This is why James is saying favoritism is terrible. 
and horrific. It's a betrayal of that grace. It's a betrayal of that glory that Jesus came to give you. Now, let's move straight from this to our, our last point, which we'll, we'll try to be brief here. And the last point is this. How can we matter and be like our Father? Uh, and I want to start with maybe the same kind of honesty that we tried to start with this morning, or I tried to start, start us with this morning. And, and that's just to say this, that we really are afraid, and we're scared. And if we're honest, we're scared that we don't matter. And a lot of us spend a lot of our energy trying to distract ourselves from this fear and trying to numb ourselves to it. And, and we do that by, with our hobbies and watching, I know I do, uh, lots of TV, um, or with alcohol or obsession with sports or, or whatever, because the silence terrifies us. I mean, we're scared of the quiet. And when things get really quiet and still, we're scared to find out that we might not really matter that much. Scared that no one would miss us. Scared that we're unimportant. Scared that we don't really have any weight or significance in life. And other times, this fear in us, it drives us to fit in with a certain group, right, to find romantic love or to look a certain way or to achieve certain things in life. And we often label that ambition, but what it really is is a compulsive drive to prove that we matter and that we have some value and that we're lovable and that we're significant. A lot of times we're trying to prove it to ourselves we're pr- trying to prove it to others or even trying to prove it to God. You know, Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 16, and it was about a rich man who was dressed well and he lived in luxury and he was feasting every day. But he also, in this parable, there was another character, a poor beggar who laid at his gate and was covered with sores, and his name was Lazarus. And in this parable that Jesus told, both men died. And poor Lazarus was carried into God's presence while the rich man was tormented in hell. And maybe some of you remember that story because at one point in the story, there's a familiar part where this man, this rich man who's in torment in hell, he looks up and he sees Lazarus and he begs that God would send him just to dip his finger in some water and touch it to his tongue to ease his anguish. And there are a lot of interesting things about that parable, but the most interesting thing in that parable to me is this. In all of Jesus' parables, and He told a lot of parables, in all of Jesus' parables, this is the only parable where a character gets a name, and it's Lazarus, the poor beggar. See, the rich man, he spent a lifetime accumulating wealth and power and influence to prove that he mattered. But when death came, Jesus is saying, that's all he was, a rich man, without a name, without an identity that could last. But Lazarus had a name. He had an identity that was untouchable by his circumstances, that was untouchable even by death itself, and he lasted forever is what Jesus was saying. Lazarus had nothing, and he was the one who mattered. He had an identity in Jesus. You know, Ernest Becker, he, he really was right that we're terrified 
that we might not matter. And it's driving us at much deeper levels than we ever imagined. You know, Ernest Becker, he died. He died pretty early. He died when he was 49, I think. Um, And he never became a Christian. But in his book, The Denial of Death, he did write this. As an ideal, Christianity, on all the things we have listed, stands high perhaps even highest in some vital ways, as people like Kierkegaard, Chesterton, the Niebuhrs, and so many others have compellingly argued. He wouldn't accept it. But of all the ideals he could think of about how people try to deal with this terror that they don't matter, he knew Christianity was compelling because only Christianity offers real grace and real glory. Unlike every other religion and every other ideal, Christianity says you can stop. You can finally stop. You can stop trying to prove that you matter. You're free. Jesus gave up His glory to give you His glory that will last forever. Forever and ever. Listen, how can we matter? You come to Jesus and you're going to get a name that will last forever. Revelation chapter 2 verse 17, Jesus says that he'll give us a name written on a stone in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't really know what that means, (laughs) but it means something really good. It means that you will have a name that will last forever and ever. And there's nothing, and Christianity says you don't have to do anything but receive that name. It comes by grace. It can't be earned by anything you do or how successful you are or how educated you are. It's a mercy and grace for the people at the bottom. And listen, when you come to Jesus and find out that you matter in Him, it sets you free. It sets you free to be like Him. It sets you free to control your tongue for the sake of others. It sets you free to live a life of uncompromised integrity. It sets you free to care for the most helpless of society. It sets you free to practice pure kindness to others. Why? Because you don't need any returns on your investments anymore. You have everything you could have ever hoped or ever dreamed or ever need in Jesus. It's yours. You know, of course, we heard the beginning of this sermon, like most of us. uh, You're probably like me, and I I think about my own first two points of this sermon. I'm like, man, I feel pretty pretty bad Um, because I've played a lot of favorites, right? And I've used my tongue like weapons and not medicine in people's lives, right? And I've ignored the broken and the poor. As the hymn goes, we're prone to wonder. We are prone, listen, we are prone to forget that we are free in Jesus. And when we forget how free we are in Jesus, that's when we stop caring for the poor. That's when we use our tongues to hurt instead of heal, and so on and so forth. The gospel sets us free to do life with people who are not like us, right? People who don't act and think and look and talk like us. So I already plugged the Cordova, this is the last thing of the sermon, right? I plugged the Cordova Elementary School. Earlier in our service, we announced that our community groups have started. And you really ought to get into a community group and be around people regularly who are not like you and who don't talk like you, don't share the same political views as you, and who are very, very different from you. 
Because you are free to do that in Jesus. You have an identity like Lazarus that will last forever. Your name will be revealed to you when Jesus comes in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You that even though we've gone a little bit long this morning, um, we thank You that the gospel is so, so very simple. Because Your love for us is so, so very simple in that it doesn't depend anything upon us, but depends entirely upon the person and work of Jesus. And He has accomplished everything for us so that in Him we can simply receive a name that will last forever and ever. And Father, we pray that this good news, that it would liberate us, that it would set us free, that it would set us free knowing that we are people who matter in Jesus in order that we can now begin to approach lifestyles that really matter to You in our care for the helpless, in the way we speak with one another, in the way we use our gifts to serve one another. Father, we pray that You would work this good work of Your gospel deep into our hearts in order that we might really experience the freedom and live changed lives because of it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.